Welcome to episode 153, where we go bigger, better, and deeper on the God Stuff podcast, a bigger impact for Christ and the gospel, a better understanding of scripture, how to apply, interpret, and use it in your life and the lives of other, other people, and a deeper walk with God. So bigger, better, and deeper. Glad you are here. Today, we are continuing one more episode on revival. This is because we're hearing stories of revival. And of course, Greg Laurie's amazing, wonderful Jesus Revolution movie. Didn't you cry? Come on. No. I took some students and I college students and it really moved them and I loved it. And everyone I know has been powerfully moved by this. So go see it if you haven't seen it. But we're continuing on that. And what I've been doing is talking about some of the weirdness that happens in revival and saying, hey, calm down, boys and girls. It's going to be okay. And uh, I'm quoting Spurgeon, I'm quoting D.L. Moody, I'm quoting Lutzer, I could bring in quotes from David Martin Lloyd-Jones, and all these great heavyweights who are not charismatic, or are not signs and wonders people. This isn't the vineyard, this isn't John Wimber, and all of that, whom God used in mighty ways. I'm just saying that you don't have to be a crazy charismatic to be okay with some of the weirdness that happens during revival. Revival is intense. And even the um, highly respected non-charismatics of days gone by have an openness and an acceptance and a willingness to be patient with it. So that's the essence of today's podcast, which is a continuation from last time. Last time we talked about Spurgeon. Today, where I'm going to talk about Moody and then about Erwin Lutzer. And then I'm going to give some of my own reflections on manifestations with regard to revival. So there you go. I hope you enjoy it. Go check us out at veritasschool.life. And everything I do is kind of collected over there at maxgrace.com. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Here we go. Welcome to the God Stuff Podcast with Bill Giovanetti, the home of grace-powered living. Because grace isn't an app. It's an operating system. Here's Bill. Okay, we're picking up where we left off last time. Last time we were talking about some comments from Charles Spurgeon about revival. And in particular, we're talking about the excesses of revival or the manifestations, as the word is today, of revival or what they used to call the enthusiasm, the enthusiasms, the enthusiastic kind of over the top, almost fanatical weirdness that can accompany revival. And uh, Peter Cartwright talked about them. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. I have, uh, I went and got a book. This is from 1856. It's the autobiography of the great revivalist of the Second Great Awakening named Peter Cartwright. I'm going to hold his, hold this up. It's very fragile, but this is, let's see if we can get a picture of Peter Cartwright. There he is. And the title is Autobiography of Peter Cartwright. The Backwoods Preacher. This is an original 1856 edition, and I cannot tell you how happy I am to own this book. It's a treasure, and we'll come to him in a little bit. But also around the same time as Peter Cartwright ministered, there was an evangelist many of us have heard of named Dwight Lyman Moody, M-O-O-D-Y-D-L Moody. If you're from Chicago, you're probably familiar with the Moody Bible Institute, a school named after him and intended to kind of promote the revivalism of Moody. Moody's one of my heroes. I love Moody. He's an amazing 
preacher and just just so focused on the Word of God. But above all else, let's get people saved. So what are we talking about? We're talking about revival. And particularly over the years, I've collected some responses to the excess, weird, fanatical stuff in revival, as I mentioned. And so what did D.L. Moody say about this? Okay. Uh, Moody ministered roughly at the same period as Spurgeon. He experienced the American counterpart of the British revival that was experienced by Spurgeon. Historians call the American edition of this revival the Third Great Awakening. D.L. Moody had an experience which catapulted his ministry forward and furthered the revival in America, which is already underway. Both Moody and his trusted friend and assistant, R.A. Torrey, Reuben Archer Torrey, called Moody's experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So let me pause here. What are we talking about? We're talking about manifestations of the Spirit. Talking about manifestations with regard to revival. And we're talking about people who are not typically associated with the charismatic camp who spoke approvingly of some of these manifestations. Spurgeon was one. That's the whole last episode. And now Moody and in a minute, Erwin Lutzer. All right. So this is stuff I've had for a couple of decades. I've never shared it. Here we go. D.L. Moody had an experience which catapulted his ministry forward, which he called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I do not agree with that title. I don't think this is the baptism of, of the Holy Spirit. I think this is a personal spiritual awakening. However, I'm not going to question the experience. I prefer to call this the filling of the Holy Spirit, as I believe that every Christian has already received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I see baptism of the Holy Spirit as a once-for-all experience at the moment of salvation for every child of God. That's how I see it, but that's not what this podcast is about. I see filling of the Spirit as an ongoing ministry of the Spirit, which He sovereignly responds to heartfelt prayer to give a special and powerful touch. I think, look, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, ask God to fill you with the Spirit, and He will. I've got all kinds of teachings on that. But there are times when you say, oh Lord, you know, I don't want more of you because you can't get more of God than you already have. You can't get more saved than you already are. You can't get more blessings than you already have. But you can step into a deeper and fuller experience of the grace of God. Why not? Most of the time when the Spirit fills us, we don't feel anything. When I go preach every single Sunday, unless I forget, in which case it's a disaster, I say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. And I don't I don't get some sudden electric zap from on high, but it's up to Him. He's the sovereign Spirit. So here is R.A. Torrey writing about Moody's experience, all right? And this is kind of, again, in the camp of what more would more people would probably call charismatic or whatever. This powerful filling follows a period of intense intercession in which two elderly women personally prayed for Moody to get the power. Again, don't get hung up on Tory's references to this as the baptism of the Spirit. Focus on the dramatic work in Moody's heart and its fruit. Here's the description. So I'm quoting now. Not long after, one day on his way to England, he was walking up Wall Street in New York. Mr. Moody very seldom told this story, and I almost hesitate to tell it. And in the midst of the bustle and hurry of that city, his prayer was answered. The power of God fell upon him as he walked up that street, and he had to hurry off to the house of a friend and ask that he might have a room by himself. And in that room, he stayed alone for hours, and the Holy Ghost came upon him, filling his soul with such joy that at last he had to ask God to withhold his hand, lest he die on the spot from very joy. He went out from that place with the power of the Holy Ghost upon him. And when he got to London, the power of God wrought through him mightily in North London, and hundreds were added to the churches. And that was what led to his being invited over to the wonderful campaign that followed in years later. Time and again, 
Mr. Moody would come to me, this is R.A. Tory writing, and say, Tory, I want you to preach on the baptism with the Holy Ghost. I do not know how many times he asked me to speak on that subject. Okay, that's the end of the quote. Now, again, I've told you my theological misgivings on the terminology, but cannot deny that experience. It's Moody. It's not some freak. Once Moody had some teachers in Northfield, this is on the East Coast of the U.S., the Moody Bible Institute of the Eastern USA, fine men, all of them, but they did not believe in a definite baptism of the Holy Ghost for the individual. They believed that every child of God was baptized with the Holy Ghost, and they did not believe in any spe special baptism with the Holy Ghost for the individual. Mr. Moody came to me and said, Tori, will you come up to my house after the meeting tonight, and I will get those men to come, and I want you to talk this thing out with them. Of course, I very readily consented, and Mr. Moody and I talked for a long time, but they did not altogether see eye to eye with us, and when they went, Mr. Moody signaled for me to remain for a few moments. Mr. Moody sat there with his chin on his breast, as he so often sat, when he was in deep thought, and then he looked at me and said, oh, why will they split hairs? Why don't they see that this is just the one thing that themselves need? They are good teachers. They are wonderful teachers, and I am so glad to have them here, but why will they not see that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is just the one teacher that they themselves need? And listen, you guys, you know, I'm not going to quibble with a great D.L. Moody or R.A. Tory. I don't I disagree much more with Tory, actually, but Moody's amazing. But that there can be a special work of God in the heart of a, of a believer who's turning to God and seeking him. Yes. Yes. Why not? Of course. Isn't God real? Isn't our salvation real? Now, this is from the book that Why God Used D.L. Moody, written by Tory published by an arm of the Billy Graham uh, Evangelistic Association. I wonder what would have happened had Moody and Tory used the word filling instead of baptism. Okay, this is me commenting. All that stuff that I just read was from that booklet. I wonder what would have happened had Moody and Tory used the word filling instead of the word baptism. Is there a second work of God in the life of a believer? Yes, a second and a third and a tenth and a thousandth. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit the day you're saved, but you can be filled and filled in typical ways and then once in a while in remarkable ways. I see this as a semantic disagreement for even those who believe in a single unrepeatable baptism of the Spirit at conversion will allow for repeated fillings of the Spirit throughout life. Lewis Berry Chafer, John Walvert, Jay and Darby, even the great, shall we call them, dispensationalists, believed in repeated fillings of the Holy Spirit. At any rate, no one can argue that this experience impacted Moody throughout his days. He was a different man, and God thrust him to the midst of a revival, the Third Great Awakening in the mid-1800s, saw that hundreds of thousands came to Christ. And listen, if you want to get a book that'll blow your mind, grab a classic book. You could probably find it online. It is written by a former president of Wheaton College back in the day when Wheaton itself was a hotbed of revival. V. Raymond, Victor Raymond Edmund, E-D-M-A-N. The book is called They Found the Secret. And it's got a chapter on Moody, on Spurgeon, on all these heroes of the faith who had this remarkable experience of the Holy Spirit. I'll just say that. Do what you will. Now, let's go to Erwin Lutzer. Erwin Lutzer, the famed, now retired pastor of the Moody Church. Erwin Lutzer, who you have now heard a couple of times on this God Stuff podcast. And these quotations come from his booklet, Will America Be Given Another Chance? Written in 1993. In this booklet, Lutzer outlines the three great revivals, the great awakenings that historians recognize in American history. And so, all of these awakenings have had manifestations of the Holy Spirit, and here is Lutzer commenting. This is about the first great awakening under Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. Jonathan Edwards, and I'm quoting Erwin Lutzer now. John, are you with me? Thanks for listening to the podcast. I appreciate you putting up with me. Jonathan Edwards preached his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, not to frighten his hearers, but to rationally persuade them to flee to Christ for forgiveness and protection from God's wrath. 
One observer recorded, so vivid and solemn was the impression made that we suppose that as soon as Mr. Edwards should close his discourse, the judge would descend and the final separation take place. During Edwards' sermons, people would cry out in conviction and repentance. Others wept softly, mourning over their sins. The revival was preceded by organized united prayer. In 1743, Edwards, who believed that corporate prayer was more effective than the accumulated prayers of individuals, encouraged concerts of prayer and suggested days for prayer and fasting. Churches in other colonies followed suit. Then the prayer movement spread to Scotland and England. Estimates regarding the number of conversions vary, but at least 50,000 were believed to be converted, greatly affecting the culture of the day. The skeptics said the revival was nothing but an emotional phenomenon. In the compelling book, titled Religious Affections, and affections is the old word for emotions. Edwards defended what God had done. He showed from Scripture how to distinguish between the false and true spiritual experiences. Whenever God works in an extraordinary way, Satan comes to imitate and confuse, but this does not diminish God's work. If we pray for rain, someone has said, let us not complain about the mud. End of quote. Erwin Lutzer. Way to go, Erwin. Yeah, there's a mess, but God's at work. People are messy. Lutzer also now, that's the first great awakening. Lutzer also comments on the second great awakening under leaders such as Peter Cartwright. Under the leadership of James McCready, a spiritual awakening began at a camp meeting in Kentucky. The power of God seemed to shake the whole assembly. One observer says that the cries from the distressed arose almost as loud as the preacher's voice. No person seemed to want to go home. Eternal things were the vast concern. This is Lutzer. A similar but larger camp meeting was organized by Barton Stone, a Presbyterian pastor at Cane Ridge. Between 10,000 and 25,000 people came with wagons, carriages, and by foot. People fell down crying out, trembling, and not infrequently, sinners dropping down on every hand, shrieking, groaning, crying for mercy, convulsed. Those who professed to be saved, praying, agonizing, fainting, falling down in distress for sinners or in raptures of joy. Some of these extremes were often used by critics to discredit the meetings. However, undeniably, God was at work. So says Erwin Lutzer. Now, I'm going to comment on some of these manifestations, and this is from my book, Chaos. Now, what about the crying out and the falling down and the jerks? Peter Cartwright talks about uh, the jerks, which is people being taken by the Holy Spirit, and they would just like spasmodically jerking. And he says hats would go flying. And Cartwright says that he had to fight hard not to laugh out loud when this started happening. So what do we think about this? We're talking about these manifestations. What about the crying out and falling down and the jerks and other manifestations? Isn't that a charismatic thing? Isn't that emotionalism? Let me greatly say that these manifestations and the Great Awakenings were not like what you might see on television today in big, enthusiastic, or even charismatic Christian rallies. There were major differences. I have three major differences. First, the audience was different. In the Great Awakenings, the audiences were mainly skeptical, if not downright hostile toward Christianity. If anything, they ridiculed the manifestations, and individuals were shocked to find when the manifestations began happening to them. This was not a group of Christians who was trying to whip this up because they wanted it. This was a group of non-Christians or of skeptical Christians who didn't want anything to do with it, but were curious. And then this stuff started happening. By contrast, what you see today in many Christian events is large groups of professing Christians, not skeptics, having a Christian good time. There's not necessarily anything wrong with this. Emotion is good. It's just that we should not equate revival with emotional responses. 
The second difference, second. So the first is the audience was different. The second difference is the results were different. In the Great Awakenings, hundreds of thousands of lost people were saved, truly converted to the Savior. When the revival-type meetings ended, whole towns were radically transformed. These were the truest manifestations of revival. Families were reunited. Saloons went out of business. Houses of prostitution shut their doors. And you could hardly walk down the street without hearing hymns sung from the homes. These are the cowboy towns. This is the Wild West. These are the frontier towns of America. In contrast, in contrast to this, when today's so-called revival preachers leave town, the cities are hardly changed at all, except for a greater skepticism on the part of unbelievers. Where are the thousands of new converts? Where are the packed out churches? Where are the changes in public morality? In so many of today's charismatic signs and wonders meetings, professing Christians may be dancing in the aisles, but the onlooking world hardly notices except the left. And what I, I look again, I'm skeptical. I'm not against. I'm going to be open to what God wants to do. But until we see salvations, I'm not going to use the word revival. Is it the beginnings of a revival at Asbury and Cedarville and Texas A&M and all this? Maybe. Looks like. I sure hope so. I wish social media would get out of the way. So I said there are three major differences. The first, there's a different audience. The second, there's a different result. Third, the methods were different. The leaders in America's, get this, the leaders in America's Great Awakening sought to create solemn assemblies. Solemn. That's what they called them. Come to the solemn assembly. You go to some of these signs and wonders churches, they are not trying to create a solemn assembly. They're trying to manufacture emotion in many cases. There were no attempts to generate emotional outbursts in the Great Awakenings. There was no manipulation of emotion. In fact, the pastors in the Great Awakenings worked hard to quiet the people down. They didn't whip it up. They didn't create a frenzy. The weird stuff was not the agenda. A reconsecrated church, a re-evangelized community, and a re-honored God, that was the agenda. In many of today's meetings, just the opposite is true. The whole service seems designed to rev up emotion. This has nothing to do with true revival. So that's my critique of what's happening in many churches today that want to create a generation of revivalists and live in continual revival. There's no such thing as continual revival. It's continual revival. We live, you know, a genuine life of God. But revival is an occasional, sudden, dramatic, unusual work of God in the church with consequences that spill into the world with unusually large number of numbers of people getting saved. The second great awakening. So now I'm going back to my notes. The second great awakening reminds us that John, that God uses people of diverse theological persuasions. Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield were strong Calvinists believing that revival could only come by the good pleasure of God. Finney was an Arminian. Okay. So that was Erwin Lutzer. Now, continuing with Lutzer, going from the first to the second and now the third great awakening, continuing with Erwin Lutzer, Lutzer writes this. This revival was silent and orderly and did not have the excesses of some of the previous revival moments, previous revival movements. It was dubbed the businessman's awakening because it had no great leaders, no famous revivalists who embodied the movement. Pastors took turns leading the prayer meetings, but no one person dominated. This goes to show that not only does God use people of diverse theological backgrounds, but he also uses different means in capturing the attention of the church. Well, many of us would prefer a quiet awakening. It simply is not our choice. It is the choice of God who sovereignly disposes. By the way, this is me, by the way, it may help to know that during the silent and orderly third great awakening in America, other nations outside America experienced powerful revival accompanied with strange phenomena and manifestations. These include Wales, Ireland, Scotland, and England. It's during this revival that Spurgeon defends the manifestations as a 
quoted in the previous episode. But returning to Erwin Lutzer, he makes a powerful point, one that should humble every one of us. Some of the greatest enemies of the gospel are within Christendom. Make no mistake, if a revival came to the United States, it would be strongly opposed, not merely by the people of the world, but by large segments of the religious establishment. Dead, slumbering churches would awake to resist the work of God. Dead, slumbering churches would awake to resist the work of God. A revival always divides a community. As its influence grows, there is little room for neutral ground. Revival unites true believers despite their denominational labels and forms of worship. The glory of the Lord is more important than any one church or leader. Amen, 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 amen. Good job, Erwin Lutzer. He writes, we must create a climate in which the Holy Spirit is so free to work that channels are readied for whatever God chooses to do. May God make us heed the warning of Gamaliel when the Jews were alarmed over the revival of the early church. This is Gamaliel. This is Lutzer quoting Acts 5.37. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow unless you even be found to fight against God. End of quote, Erwin Lutzer. Okay, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, Erwin Lutzer commenting on the manifestations so I want to draw some of my own conclusions. First, I've purposely selected these three authors because they are not part of the charismatic stream. They recognize that God sovereignly sends revival and does so in his own way. In one place, revival may be sudden, intense, loud, and seemingly chaotic. In another place, it may be calm and orderly. Different temperaments prefer different styles. But it is simply not our choice, regardless of how revival comes or through whom it comes. If revival comes, we should bless it and praise God for it and seek for seek it for ourselves. Revival is not a charismatic thing. It's an old, nor is it an old-fashioned relic. It is for the whole body through all the ages of the church. And not and I, like I said, I've spoken of of uh, Spurgeon and of Moody and of Erwin Lutzer. I could also include. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. These are like the evangelical heavyweights. These are not crazy people would say the same thing. My second conclusion, these authors agree with the wisdom of men like Edwards and Whitfield that though the manifestations are of God, it is allowable to keep them within certain boundaries. God has called us to be wise and prudent. Wise and prudent. We must seek a balance in which we neither quench the spirit on one hand nor stir up your emotionalism on the other. I wish I could take out the word balance. I will. I will. Let's do it right now. We, we must... Uh, balance is not a virtue. We must neither quench the spirit on one hand, nor stir up sheer emotionalism on the other. Amen and amen. Don't quench the spirit. And spirit might throw us out of balance. Do not stir up emotionalism. You cannot manufacture this. That's really bad. Third, we must not let the excesses cause us to reject the entire work as from God. Wherever God is working in power, Satan will be working with his far lesser power. This is what makes revival messy. You guys, draw a pie, draw a circle, divide it into three parts. It's like a pizza with three slices. There's the God part, there's the Satan part, there's the human origin part. Wherever you go, in a church or a ministry or evangelistic event or crusade, those three forces are operative. God, Satan, human origin. And how big are the, the slices relative to one another? Well, that's for us using our discernment and wisdom to decide. But we don't throw out the whole thing because some of it's of God. Fourth, there is a remarkable interplay between human emotion and the power of the Spirit. It is impossible to draw a distinct line between the two, for the Spirit cannot work on a whole person without working on the emotions. Neither those who say that manifestations are all emotions, nor those who say they are all the Holy Spirit are correct. True manifestations are both. 
Of course, uh, false manifestations are neither uh, false manifestations are neither being either demonic or human. Beyond this, it is futile to attempt to draw lines and say that this is human, but that's of God, the Holy Spirit. When a gloved hand picks up a shovel, we do not say that this much was of the glove or that much was of the hand. Okay, my fifth observation, we must pray. If you object to the manifestations, pray that God may correct us and give us a true experience of his power. If you seek the manifestations, pray that God may work on your heart and the hearts of those around you instead of merely shaking up your body. If you are angered by this, pray. If you are comforted by this, pray. If you are jealous of this, pray. If you are surprised by this, pray. We can talk about it. We can analyze it till we turn blue. But unless we pray... God will not send revival. Lutzer correctly points out that it is when we pray together that God begins to move among us together. Sixth, though revival tarries, we must yet be faithful in holiness, in prayer, in Bible study, in worship, in preaching, in evangelism, in evangelism, in evangelism, in evangelism, in serving and giving. The absence of revival does not exempt us from strenuously pressing forward in our life of faith, nor does it exempt the church. I talked to a, a board member recently. And asked him, does your church want to grow? He said, well, actually, you know, we're, we're more interested in spiritual growth than in numerical growth. And I, I mean, I had to fight my gag reflex. Don't, okay, what, you want? Yeah, right, fine. Somebody's got to go to hell. Uh, that's all right. Sorry, I'm back. God gains as much glory from us during our dry times as he does during seasons of refreshing. Neither is revival to be disdained. It is to be sought. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We pray, Isaiah 64, 1. My seventh and final comment, I summarize my view in four words. Don't insist, don't deny. Those who have had an experience of revival must not insist on it for everybody, nor must they claim that God moved on them because they were more prayerful or spiritual or superior in any way. God can move powerfully with or without manifestations. Don't insist, yet don't deny. Don't deny someone else's experience. Leave them alone. If they say it is of God, who are you to deny their interpretation? History demonstrates what scripture declares and the leaders of the church have taught for millennia. When God comes with power, it isn't always neat and tidy, but when the smoke clears, lives have been changed by the power of the gospel. Don't deny what God is doing in days of revival. Lord, we do pray that you would rend the heavens and come down. Lord, we do pray that we might see revival in our own day, that we might see such an outpouring of your spirit on the church, that the world sits up and take note, takes notice, that lost people are one to Christ in droves, and that the churches are filled and that our public morals, our public value system, which is so evil and so satanic right now, is totally turned around. Lord, you can do this. And so we seek you, we ask you, we plead with you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the God Stuff Podcast. Find out more at GodStuff.tv.